of a series we're calling Untouchables. And there are some things that, uh, that the church has largely uh, not discussed and talked about uh, over the last several years and decades that we are going to talk about over the next few weeks. Things that our culture is walking through and dealing with. And sometimes these things leave us with, well, what does the word say? What am I supposed to think about and believe through these things? So we're going to talk about these things. Uh, we're talking about homosexuality. We're talking about uh, addiction. We're talking about affairs. We're talking about some, some big, deep subjects. We're talking about mental illness and things. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through some of these things. Now, don't worry. We're not going to get explicit and graphic. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So if you know me, you know I'm, I'm but my mom goes to church here. I'm not doing that. But so, but, uh, but no. Uh, and so we are excited though to see what the Word of God says about these things. Man, we don't have to run from hard subjects, right? We don't have to. The Bible is so clear. And man, we live under the authority of the Word. God has promised to do some things in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that we get, you know, pink Cadillacs and such, but it does mean we can live under the authority of His blessing. And so we are talking about that over the next few weeks. I am so excited for this series. Bring your friends. Bring, as I say many times, bring your neighbors, bring your enemies. They may change and be your friends from then on. But, you know, man, it is going to be a great week. And so today... I am super excited because I heard this guy speak for the first time uh, at our, our state uh, council of all the pastors. Uh, he spoke and addressed that council uh, last year. And, and as he spoke and talked, I said, I leaned over to, to Pastor Joe and Pastor Jen. I said, this is a message that our church has to hear. This is a message that our church needs to hear. And the more that Drew and I have, have, have hung out and talked, we've had a great time the, yesterday, last night, and this morning, and just talking about what God's doing and what's happening. Man, I am so excited for what God's going to speak to us today. So, without further, further ado, I would like to have you give a huge Bridgeview welcome to uh, Pastor Drew Berryessa as he comes. Give him a warm welcome as he comes this morning, church. So, good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, I am Drew Berryessa. I am from Oregon, um, way over there, or there. I don't even know because you don't have mountains here, so I don't know where to look <laughs> to understand where anything is. Um, that way. Okay, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, wherever it is, I'm from there, and um, I have spent the last over 13 years in full-time ministry to the community of uh, men and women that are struggling with same-sex attraction and homosexuality and sexual brokenness. Um, and I think that whenever someone comes to speak on a topic like this, you should understand why they have the authority to do it, because you know, this is a tough, tough subject. Uh, and not only have I been in ministry to this particular uh, population, this particular people group, for the last probably 13 or so years, um, but I come from that brokenness as well. I grew up and I accepted Christ into my life when I was four years old at a church in central Washington where I was born and raised. And um, how many of you know that just because you know Jesus does not mean that you are immune to any struggle or temptation or brokenness? Okay, yes, you're on board this morning. I appreciate that. Um, so I accepted Christ when I was four years old, and I was really, I mean, Jesus was important to me. It wasn't my parents' faith, it was mine. And to give you an illustration of that, like I was a little evangelist in grade school. 
So when I was in kindergarten, I'd go up to kids on the playground. I'd be like, oh, do you know Jesus? And people would be like, no. And I'd be like, oh, you're going to hell. You know, that was my way of evangelizing. <laughs> Fortunately, I have gained a little bit more nuance in my message. A little bit more nuance in my message since, since then. But, uh, you know, I, I, just, I share that with you to, so that you know that Jesus was important to me. When I accepted Christ as my Savior, I knew that I was a sinner and I knew that I needed a Savior. And my faith journey took a, a few hits in my early childhood when my parents' marriage fell apart. But I came back and began attending church on my own and really pursuing God when I was about 14 years old. And that was about the same time that this struggle of mine really began to develop heartily. Don't you know that Satan is an opportunist? You know, you make a step towards righteousness and he brings something to try to knock you down. That's a common experience for a lot of us, is whenever we're trying to press into new territory with the Lord, Satan is there to try to bring us down and to diminish the work that God's doing in our lives. And he, you know, this, this was a struggle that I was dealing with. And it was not one that I had a lot of freedom to talk about. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine, but I lived in a very small town, very similar to here in central Washington, back in the 90s, going to a very conservative, very fundamentalist kind of church, I, you know, should have had all the freedom in the world to talk about my homosexual struggle, right? Because the church does such a good job with sexuality, correct? By that shocked look on your faces, I can tell that we know that's not the truth. In fact, if I could sum up the total teaching on all sexuality that I received through most of my Christian life, I could sum it up in one word. Anyone want to guess it? Don't. That's the word. I can sum up the full teaching of sexuality that I received in that one word of don't because it was really based in moralism. It was really based in the do's and the don'ts of sexuality and nothing, nothing really that was life-giving, mainly just something that made me feel condemned because although I struggled with same-sex attraction, I didn't want that. I didn't want to deal with that. I prayed heartily that God would take that struggle from me and quite honestly, he didn't. I had to wrestle through deeper things but that's a whole other message than the one I want to bring you today. You can ask those questions at the question and answer time tonight, which I hope you all come to because it's my favorite thing to do. So um, I just want to share that with you to, to, so that you know this is not theoretical to me. When I come and I talk about this issue, I don't talk as someone who has read a bunch of you know, books or studied culture. I, I come as someone who has walked through the trenches of this, surrendered my life and my sexuality to the Lordship of Christ, fought to have purity in my life, walked through the difficulty of people in church that rejected me and misinterpreted the Bible at me and condemned me for things that I wasn't even doing. You know, it's interesting to me that when, when the church has dealt with homosexuality in the past, we, we have this subtle agreement that we make with the culture where we assign identity because of people's struggles and their behavior. And one of the most subtle ways that I always experienced it in church was when, when Leviticus, uh, the verse in Leviticus would be playing out do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is an abomination. The word says that, meaning the action is an abomination. But every time I heard it pronounced in church, I heard they. They are an abomination. And church, let me just say this. If, if we can do one thing, if we can take our, our understanding of this issue and take identity out of it and stop assigning identity and, and, and labeling people where the word of God doesn't, the word of God says the action or the behavior is a sin. That's the abomination, not the person. The person is created in the image of God. He loves them and he wants to redeem them. And so 
just letting you know, I've walked through the trenches of having to fight for that understanding myself. Because for me, with this struggle, I felt untouchable. I felt like the leper. I felt like the unclean person that Jesus really didn't want in his, in his house. And a lot of the time, it was a church that made me feel that way. And so I come to you this morning to share on this, not from someone who has not experienced this, but not only someone who has experienced this struggle, but God has redeemed and healed. And I love the church. And even though it was a place of great pain for me, I'm sorry, I love the bride of Christ, and I want to see the bride of Christ be a place where people know that they are loved and can experience the love of Jesus like I have. And so, you know, I, one thing I love, and I think that we should really understand that this is one of the greatest delights of, of, I think, our Lord and one of our privileges as Christians is that we get to take the things that Satan meant to destroy us and turn them right around for the glory of God and for the healing of his church. And so it's my privilege today to take those experiences that hurt me and help teach you how to be a more redemptive place so people can be healed. Amen? Are we on board with that this morning? Good. Remember that during the offering. Just kidding. Very kidding. I'm sorry. That was so bad. The bad joke, Drew. Don't ever do that again. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about this issue in a different way than probably most people do because of my perspective. Um, I, I want to talk about this in light of, of a struggle that the church has consistently had in addressing this issue and a lot of other issues. And that is what I'd like to call the tension between truth and love. Now, Jesus did truth and love perfectly. He held those two things that seem often elusive to us as the church and, and contradictory at times. He held them in perfect balance. And I want to encourage us to, to seek to be like Jesus in this manner and hold truth and love together. Now, this plays out in, in several different ways. And, and what I'd like to suggest is how we engage in truth and love with, particularly the sexually broken, depends upon several things. First off, how we view and understand the character of God. Second, how we understand a biblical perspective on sexuality. And third, how we look at people who are involved in that community. And so I'm going to start first and foremost with the most important, and that's how we view God. Um, I love the theologian, ooh, hello friend. I love the theologian and author A.W. Tozer. I call him Ah Tozer because I just love his, his readings and, and what he's written. And he wrote volumes on the attributes of God, which is essentially God's character. And he wrote this about God's character. He says, Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her conception of God. And I insist upon this and said it many times that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy conception or understanding of the character of God. Now, when I look at that statement and I look at this issue, I look at it through the lens of truth and love. And often we as the church struggle because we emphasize God's character one way or the other based on truth or based on love, and we present a distorted image of God to the world around us and to us as well. And I want to illustrate this by saying, like, when we focus on that truth character, the truth elements of God, which are his, his judgment, his righteousness, his holiness, you know, we can focus on that and, and begin to represent a God that doesn't want to redeem people, who just wants to judge them, just wants to reject them. You know, often, and, and it's really subtle, we get to a place where we begin emphasizing his truth and righteousness, especially in a culture that's thrown away truth, especially in a culture that has no moral compass. We feel that threat coming upon us, and we start to emphasize that as a reaction and let me tell you, church, it's not based in godliness. It's based out of fear. 
Because we see the world encroaching on us and our beliefs, and we want to stand up for the truth. Often it's like you have this truth grenade, and you pull the pin, and you throw it out there, like, that's sin, you're going to hell, whoo, boom. And you're like, is anyone saved yet? You know, it doesn't quite work. I mean, I've seen the people, I'm sure we've all seen people who stand out on, on maybe a, a street corner. I lived in Portland, Oregon for a number of years, and there are plenty of people who stand on street corners there. But the Christian ones who have their signs turn or burn and scream at people about their condemnation. And honestly, I've never met anyone who came to Jesus because they were yelled at. I've never met a person who left homosexuality because they lost an argument. It, it's not an effective means of, of representing the heart and character of God. In fact, often when we start proclaiming these truths in the absence of his love and grace and mercy, we're not presenting God. We're, we're presenting our own distorted image of who we think he is. We have to present God in his fullness or we don't present him at all. Now, when we focus on the truth aspect, what happens in our church culture is we become aggressive. We start getting uh, hostile towards people because we're defending the truth. And we start lacking grace with people. We start calling out and marginalizing and, and labeling sins as one is worse than the others. And you know, we do this in church because there are tolerable sins that we have all around us that we either ignore or we, we dismiss away as not very consequential. And we list the ones that are real nasty and real ugly. And I can tell you from someone who's experienced homosexuality, that's always on the top of the list of the most reprehensible. And we become somewhat legalistic and then self-righteous. That's what happens in our church culture where we emphasize truth without any love. Would you agree? You know, there is legitimacy in defending the truth. So please don't hear me say that I'm not a defender of the truth. I have, I have bet my life and staked everything on the truths of the word of God. God's idea and his, his commandments for sexuality, I have had to sacrifice areas of my life that many people never will have to based on how dearly I hold the truths of the scripture in this. So don't hear me say that those truths and defending them aren't important. They are absolutely important. They are essential to us in our, in our Christian walk. However, if it's not held in right balance with love and mercy and grace, it becomes a yoke of slavery and not freedom. And we don't want that for people. We don't want them walking from one prison into another. We want them free. and We want them whole. Amen? Amen. And again, although there is legitimacy, if we base our defense of the truth out of fear, we are not operating in the spirit God gave us because we know in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we talk about love, and there's plenty of churches that emphasize love over truth. In fact, it's almost like this idea that, you know, we, don't, we want to get away from the judgment and the righteousness of God, and we want to invite people in, and we want to make sure people feel loved. It's like the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves has dismissed all responsibility of calling any sin out or, or even calling anyone to repentance over anything. So we just want the love of God and the love of God and the love of God. And don't get me wrong, I love the love of God, don't we all? But do you know that love, the love of God, means nothing if we don't understand that we don't deserve it? You know, it's interesting. You tell someone today that's not part of the church community, God loves you. Of course he does. Why wouldn't he? I'm amazing. There's a lot of our responses that we get because people feel very lovable. But they don't understand 
that there is something great about the love of God, that God, or holy, holy, and holy, and right, and right, would love me. It's in light of the fact that I am a sinner, that I have sinned, that I am un, that I've been unrighteous, that I have been broken. Yet God, in His mercy and love, has stooped down low to pick me up. The love of God is amazing and powerful only when held in right balance with the truth. But of course, when you get into that emphasis of the truth position, you tend to become passive in your spirituality. We read this cheap grace that covers everything and nothing is is needing to be called out. That begins to breed immaturity in our faith and and a a lack of any of the real fruits of the Spirit. We have immature believers. We have self-centered believers often because we don't need to sacrifice anything. Ultimately, what happens is the transformational power of God is absent. It just ceases to exist. I mean, you might have good worship. You might have a good community, but no one's lives are changing. When that happens, people begin viewing the commandments of God and his standards negatively, restrictively, like a yoke of slavery, although they're not. And then ultimately what will happen in that progression is the very things that the scripture says for us to avoid that are wrong, that are, that are, that are bad, that are ungodly, begin to be celebrated in a, in, a, in, a, in a freedom of diversity and grace. They begin to be celebrated rather than calling people to surrender those things and truly be found alive in Christ. And so I see this at play. If you don't see this at play, I don't know what you're looking at, but clearly the tension of this is so incredibly timely and important for the body of Christ. We could forget all of culture and simply look at the Christian church, those who profess faith, and see that this tension is ripping denominations and the body of Christ worldwide apart, where there is such disparity between the truth and grace and, and both look distorted. And what I want to tell you is that God has called us to that tension in the middle where we exhibit the character and the presence of Jesus in a way that does not sacrifice truth and does not sacrifice love because God never calls us to do that. We can live in that tension and manifest the life of Christ powerfully to a world that needs his presence. Now, I want to talk another aspect of God's character, and I need us to be on board on this. So I'm going to ask this question, and I need your participation, because if I have to be here up here talking about sexual brokenness, you at least have to say yes or no to things that I say to you. I think it's a fair deal. Thank you. You. You are my favorite. I'll bring you with me on my next trip. It'll be great. So I'm going to ask this question, and I want us on board. Do we believe that God is in control? Try again. That was not very emphatic. Do we believe God is in control? Yes, we have to because the word of God says that he is a sovereign God. He is the king of the universe. He's in control. The Romans 8.28, I love it in the uh, Amplified Version. It says, we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his plan and purposes. Notice it does not say that all things are good, but that God causes all things to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's a really important thing. Don't ever go up to someone in crisis or in pain or in a tragedy and say, you know, God causes all things to work together you know, for the good and, and saying that that circumstance is good. The circumstance isn't, but God is. And he can make the bad thing be the good thing down the road according to his plan and purpose. Are we all on board in that? Yes. 
Yes. Okay, so God is in control, and he works everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If God is in control, do we also believe that God is the one who places people in authority and influence? Less enthusiasm there. The word does say he's the one who appoints kings. He's the one who gives influence and power. Can we get on board on that? Yes? Okay, so let me ask you this theological question. If God is the one who's in control and God is the one who gives influence and power, why does such a small population like the gay community have so much influence and power in our culture? Because God gave it to them. See what I did there? I got you on board with his character, and then I showed us something that we don't like to admit. God is in control. God gives power and authority, and this particular community that a lot of us have a really hard time with their influence and power has power in our culture. Why would God give that community that much influence and power? I want to explain it this way. I was listening to a gentleman from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, a great apologist, had come out of the Muslim world, had been um, part of that, that religion and faith, and came to know Jesus, and now speaks on these issues around the world. And he says something that, that I had been saying about the homosexual community in the church for a long time. And here's the thing. It plays out true. He said about the Muslim world, the United States has sent one missionary for every Muslim, for every million Muslims. For the last 20 years, one to every million. And God was not content to allow us to neglect or ignore that people group any longer. So he went right ahead and sent him to us. Why on earth would God give so much influence and power to the gay community in our country? Because church, we've been happy to ignore them and allow them to go to hell without any concern of redeeming them. And God loves that people. And God wants to redeem that people. And there are Saul's waiting to become Paul's in that community. And if you don't care to redeem them, if you don't care to get uncomfortable to engage with that community, God will make it and has made it so we no longer can ignore. And you know what? This is not outside of God's character. If you look in the Old Testament, he liked to put his people in the great big cosmic timeout. I like to call exile. When his people were not behaving like his people, when they weren't representing his character, he would send an idolatrous awful nation to have control and influence over them until they repented, until they remembered who they were. And then, of course, God would always preserve a remnant and bring them back in power. But this is called the discipline of the Lord. And as Hebrew says, he disciplines those who are legitimately his. So church, if we're looking at our circumstance these days, and a lot of us are, looking at what we view as threats to our religious freedom, looking at persecution, looking at, you know, all this stuff happening because of this community, and we don't look at it through the lens of God saying, I love you, and I will discipline you to be more like me because you haven't been particularly to this community, then we are viewing it through the wrong lens because this might not be good, but God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And church, what he wants us to be is a loving community that operates in power, that brings broken people in and sees them restored into the fullness of who they're meant to be. That includes anyone in the sexual minority community. Amen? Amen. Okay, now that we're on board with that, let's, let's talk about one other issue that we have to understand um, about God and what he expects of us. I love that Jesus brought this teaching out. It's in Luke chapter 6. 
39 through 42, he says this. Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind man lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? The students are never greater than their teacher, but when the student who is fully trained will then become like the teacher. So why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Can I say this, church? Often when we take a look at the culture and we start criticizing their sexual ethic, can, have we missed the forest on our face? Because quite honestly, there's just as much sexual brokenness within the church, just as much sin that we allow to go unchecked, unrepented of, unhealed, and unredeemed. And the world sees it in us. And when we try to go to them and say, well, you should get your act together, they look at us like, hello, what gives you the authority to criticize my life? Now, that might, that might not be true for us individually, but it certainly is true for us corporately. And we have to understand that when we go represent Jesus, we're representing a lot of our cousins in the family of faith that even though we may have our act together, a lot of them don't. And we carry the full weight of that hypocrisy with us when we try to represent Jesus, like it or not. We have to walk in a humility that says, we understand we've been broken. We understand that we have been sinners too, but we plead the grace and the love of Jesus to transform our lives. And we invite you into the same process from a place of humility, not a place of superiority or judgment. Humility. Does that make sense? So let's talk about sex for a minute. Don't worry. We'll get through this. It'll be okay. You know, God has given us so much instruction on sexuality. And yet, for me, I'm often the guest speaker that comes and talks about it once or twice for a church in their calendar year. Now, that to me is a little bit heartbreaking because, like I said before, the, the full teaching I got as a, as a young person and even as a young adult was don't. And what I want to present to you is that sex is very important to God, not just the morality or the do's or the don'ts of sex. The theme of sexuality and marriage is huge for the Lord. I want to present it this way. In the very beginning of our Bible in Genesis, we see God creating male and female. In his image, he created them. And then he brought them together. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united together with his wife. Marriage and sexuality and gender start the story of the Bible. And if you look at what happens when they sin, the first consequence of the fall of mankind was what? They realized that they were what? naked, and then they were ashamed. Do you realize that the first consequence to sin was sexual in nature, was shame over God's display of his image in our gender? That's the first consequence of the fall. So now you see that this moves forward, and we see that as marriage, the theme of marriage moves forward in the Old Testament, God begins to tie his identity with his people to he is the, the groom, the husband, and Israel is the adulterous wife. You see that consistently in the scriptures. Then you see a whole book, Song of Songs, which nobody really understands. Um, you know, it's just hot topics in, in Song of Solomon. Your eyes are like sheep descending Mount Gilead, or maybe it's the teeth. I don't know. That's some racy stuff, y'all. I mean, it's just like, but it's all about sex and relationship, and it's in the middle of the Bible. And you see the themes there carry out, and then you see in the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And you see illustrations being 
tied to sexuality all throughout the scripture. I mean, why on earth in the Old Testament does God say that the men of his people have to be circumcised? Why? It's a very strange way to check ID. I don't, I don't know that I get that necessarily. It's one of those questions for the Lord when I get up there. It's like, can you explain that? Because I don't know. But yet God does not blush at these things. Jesus was notorious for bringing up sexual themes in his teachings. When he addressed the, the, the Pharisees and said, your attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. The literal translation of filthy rags are menstrual cloths. He did not shy away from sexual themes. You know, so that we understand what he's saying there, when someone has their period, they, they recognize they're not pregnant. He's essentially saying to the, the Pharisees, you don't have life in you. There's nothing growing in you. You're issuing death, not life. Your attempt at righteousness just proves that there's no life of God pregnant in you. We know that we're called to be born again, which is tied to sexuality as well. If you really stop to think about the, the, the depth of how many illustrations and how many themes about God's relationship to us tie back to sexuality, Revelation ends with the marriage feast of the Lamb and his bride. Marriage and sexuality and gender from start to finish in the entirety of Scripture, one of the most consistent themes in the Scripture, and we get one message or one series a year that addresses something that every single one of us will have to deal with. In fact, in most Bible colleges and seminaries, not one single credit hour is given to ministers to prepare them to deal with sexuality in their congregations, and it's one of the biggest struggles that people have. I think Satan has duped us into avoiding a topic that is so dear and so powerful to God, and we are not more righteous and not more healthy and not more powerful for avoiding it. We are, in fact, weaker and ill-prepared and deeply untheological. So we had to get a better understanding of this, and that's, again, a whole other one of my messages. But I don't have time for that today, so we'll move on to something else. Would you imagine a world where we just obeyed in this one area of sex? Could you imagine it? Just so that we are clear, if just the church obeyed, or just, well, let's go bigger and brighter and bigger, if the world obeyed, there would be no divorce, there'd be no rape, there'd be no sexual abuse, there'd be no abortion, there'd be no STDs, there'd be no sexual slavery, there'd be no prostitution or pornography or marital infidelity or any premarital sex, not to mention all the psychological, emotional, relational, economical, or sociological problems that come with each one of those things. Can you imagine a world like that where we simply obeyed in one area of sex? It is so important to the heart of God. We also have to understand sexual sin. We tend to elevate sexual sin as the worst of all sins. It, it happens. Homosexuality being on the top, and now I think with our culture, we're seeing transgender issues, and we're seeing pedophilia and all these issues. We rank them as much higher. But let me tell you something. Theologically speaking, my homosexual behavior was no worse than someone's gossip. I know you might not want to hear that, but theologically speaking, as far as how to be reconciled through Christ to God the Father, as far as how much of the blood of Jesus is required to wash me clean, you cooking a cookie, you cooking, you stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and lying about it will isolate you from God just as profoundly as my homosexual sin. We need to stop ranking sins as far as our ability to be cleansed and healed and forgiven by God. We rank these things 
and we, we put them in different categories and we isolate people, make them feel much more unable to approach the heart of God than they should. Now, that being said, sexual sin has different consequences in the here and now. And we have to understand that to be an effective minister because like we have the tendency to do truth and love on one end of the spectrum or another, we tend to look at maybe some of the sins that we struggle with, uh, maybe some of the sins that are not as consequential, and when someone is dealing with sexual sin, we minimize the consequences of their sin and therefore we lack compassion or empathy when they're having to deal with those consequences. If someone has premarital sex and they get pregnant, that kid is not going away, ever. I remember when my wife and I, oh, spoiler, I married, yay, (laughs) healed. I actually have three daughters, which I always say has made me struggle with men very differently than I did before. (laughs) It's more of a buy a shotgun kind of struggle, you know, as my oldest has hit puberty, you know, you know, it's kind of that sort of situation. But, um, you know, if you have a child, I remember when my wife and I brought our first child home, we looked at her after about three or four days and we thought, no one's coming to get her. (laughs) Who let us take this thing home? Like, she's all our responsibility. And you know, if, if you commit sin and you have premarital sex and you get pregnant and you keep that child, that child's not going anywhere. That is a lifelong consequence, positively and negatively, but it's a lifelong effect on your uh, forever. I've known people who come out of the homosexual lifestyle who have given their lives to Jesus. They have surrendered everything to him. But you know what? They still have HIV. And they're still going to die eventually because of their sinful consequences. Because God forgives, but nature doesn't. We have to understand that that when we're dealing with this stuff, we're asking a community to surrender their lives to Jesus, and many of them are going to deal with such incredible consequences to what their sin has been, and a very painful reality of what would it look like for someone who has invested their whole identity and their whole world in that community, and then along comes Jesus to mess up their life and ask them to surrender everything, including how they understand their identity, their spouse maybe, their entire community, every way that they understand and know each other, for absolutely no promise that they'll have any of that back. It is a big ask when we ask people to give their lives to Jesus and recognize that for a lot of them, they're coming into a community where they're going to see you once a week, for an hour maybe, for a church community that won't know what to do with them and honestly doesn't really understand them. Can you imagine how difficult that ask would be? It's extremely consequential. And so we have to understand sexual sin in in light of this. Yeah, their sin doesn't separate them from God any more than any of us on an eternal level, but oh my goodness, the deep consequences and isolation and pain that is sown through sexual sin. Church, if we want to be people of redemption, we had better be good caretakers of people who are coming out of that. Because I'll tell you the truth, in my years of ministry, I've watched hundreds of men and women encounter God and surrender their lives and then die on the vine. Because although they knew Jesus loved them and they were daring to trust him, they found nowhere in the body of Christ where they could go where people would support them and love them. And so eventually the pain of loneliness and isolation became so severe that they rejected Jesus and went back to the community that was waiting to take them. I've heard this so often, and it's, it's a shame. It is easier to find sex in the gay community than it is a hug in church. And I've experienced that. 
Can we be better? Can we understand what we're calling people to? I want to say this as well as we, I'll, I'll move on from sex because you know, we don't have a lot of time in this morning and this is a big topic, but I want to leave you with a few more things that we can consider as we learn how to be a community that can walk and, and make this not so untouchable. When we look at this, uh, particularly we have to look at how we view the, the LGBTQ person, how we view the person that's a sexual minority. Uh, there's a couple different categories of people that I, that I need us, we had to treat and interact with differently. There are those who are struggling with this and are not embracing it. They know Jesus, they love Jesus, and yet this reality is fighting their soul and they don't know how to proceed. Can I say that these people are our champions and heroes? We need to get behind them because can you imagine the difficulty that it would take to trust God in a struggle that the entire world is saying, this is who you are, there's no changing it. You need to embrace it, and yet they are laying it down for the sake of knowing and serving Jesus. Like these people, they're not, it's a very different thing to practice sin as opposed to struggle with it. Can I say that? Like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, where it says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, it doesn't say those who struggle with these on occasion. Those who practice gossip, those who practice slander, those who practice adultery, those who practice homosexuality, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you, you know that when you practice the piano, you're practicing it to perfect it. You want to get better at it. You want to do it well. When you practice medicine, it's your profession. To practice something means to pursue it with, with a, a, a focus and intention. To struggle with sin occasionally is not to practice it. It's to fall down. You didn't want to fall down. You fell down because either you're weak, either you didn't see the, the, the hole in the ground, someone pushed you down. You're not practicing sin, you're struggling with it. We treat people who struggle with sin with a different theological lens than we treat people who are practicing it. We have to, because Jesus does. That make sense? So there are people that are struggling legitimately and they love Jesus and they want to pursue him. We need to champion these people and get behind them and be willing to hear confessions that we might not be comfortable with. We need to be able to offer empathy and, and, and discipleship to people. And we need to be consistent. Let me tell you the truth. Although I found a ministry because I struggled with this, I found a ministry that specifically ministered to this. They gave me a lot of information, but you know where I was really healed? The local church. By men and women who knew nothing about how to address this, but simply decided to love me and to walk with me and to relate to me with their experiences and their struggles and where God had given them victory. They walked with me, and because of their life and their testimony, not out of homosexuality, but just out of common everyday issues, they healed me because they were in relationship with me. Because why? Because God calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And the one new commandment Jesus gave Love each other as I have loved you. These commandments are relational in nature. They're about loving relationship. And that's a context in which God will heal people is in loving relationship. Does that all make sense? So the second group of people that I really want us to understand distinctly is what I call the practicing and the proclaiming. These are people who practice homosexual behavior without any repentance, without any conviction, and proclaim that they are Christians. This is a growing community in our world. My own twin brother is in that category. Can you imagine the tension in our home all over holiday dinners? It's a little rough being me and him being him and us interacting on this level because 
I am very, very consistent about my message of repentance and about surrender, and he is existing in a world where he claims a Christian identity but practices this. For me, this is nothing more than heresy. And this is, I can't relate to my brother as a, as a brother in Christ simply because I don't have that assurance. We were talking one day, and he said, you know, the difference between you and I is I believe you're going to heaven, I believe I'm going to heaven, but you believe I'm going to hell and that you're going to heaven. And I said, I don't have the authority to tell you if you're going to hell or not. That's not in my pay grade. I don't want that power. I would be terrible with it. I would send people to hell all the time on the freeway. It would not be great. <laughs> you cut me up. Going to hell. You know, this is not what I need to do. I said, I don't, I don't have that authority, and I'm not going to tell you that you're going to hell, but my struggle and my heartbreak is that I have no assurance to tell you that you're going to heaven. Because you're living in a way that the Bible specifically says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so when I interact with people on this, I understand God is wooing a lot of people to him. And often people go to really theologically incorrect places because they are being wooed to God. A friend of mine used to call the gay denomination the church of the revolving door because people would go in, but then they'd eventually meet Jesus and get convicted and go out. I don't know the process for that other than to say that when we interact with those people, I don't think that we can interact in full fellowship like, like people would here because there's unrepentant sin and we have to deal with unrepentant sin. And that's often very difficult. The last community I'd like to say is what we can see really clearly is those secular, homosexual, or in the LGBTQ uh, community. People who don't have any conviction over God because they have no relationship with him. Can I tell you that, you know, before we ever start to address our sexuality, that is not the top priority of God them. First and foremost, he wants to win their hearts and woo them to him. Their sexuality is secondary. I had a pastor who once said it. It's a profound theological truth. Brace yourselves. You cannot clean a fish before you catch it. <laughs> profound theological truth. We somehow approach this community as if we need to get their sin cleaned up first before they can come to Jesus. And that is not how Jesus interacts. Jesus touches the unclean and makes them clean. He doesn't, you don't need to clean up before you go to him. You go to him to be clean. You go to him to be redeemed. And I've known people that went into church, got into a relationship with Jesus, and spent years before the conviction of their homosexuality ever hit them. Do we have the patience to endure, to tell people the truth, to love them well, to not hide the truth, but give God the time to work in their lives? Because I'll tell you this, no one will give up that life if they don't know that there's somewhere else that they can leave that community for a community that actually wants them. And sometimes when you've been hurt and you've been rejected and you fear rejection, it takes a little while to trust that this is a good safety net. Make sense? In all of this, let me just say this. We cannot look at any of these people in these communities as our, as our enemy. We really have one enemy. That's Satan. When we, we treat enemies in a very particular way, we don't treat them very redemptively. We want to defeat them. We get hostile. We are guarded. We, we focus on the differences and on, the, on the, the antagonism in the relationship with an enemy. We see through the lens of their sin or their hostility. And this reinforces isolation and, and marginalization in those communities. And it really does create and sustain our culture war when we view them as enemies. But 2 Timothy 2, 23-26 says this, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Now, you know, I could stop there and Facebook would lose its power. 
because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents, notice it says opponents, not enemies. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap the devil of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Friends, we don't treat them like enemies. We view them through the lens of what they are, prisoners of war. And we treat prisoners of war very different than we treat our enemy. We want to liberate the prisoner of war. We value their life. We do what we can to infiltrate the enemy's camp to get back the prisoner of war. We understand that a prisoner of war might be dirty. They might be malnourished. They might even be, you know, a little bit brainwashed at times. But we see the value in them and we pursue them anyway. We do not view them in the lens of an enemy. And we can't view anyone in this community through the lens of an enemy either. Yeah, there's hostility. There's anger. But, you know, hostility and anger, those are secondary emotions. They always flow out of pain. If I come up to any one of you and stomp on your foot, the first thing you're going to feel is pain. The next thing you're going to feel is your fist against my face. (laughs) Because we react in pain and hostility when we're hurt. And if you look at that community and the hostility and the the anger and the, the vitriol that comes out of them, can we look past that to see the pain that they're experiencing and minister to that and ignore the hostility? The Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. I may not have ever known someone who came out of homosexuality because they were argued out of it, but I have known people who surrendered their lives to Jesus because the turning point was this. Someone gave them a mocha. It's a really interesting story. A hostile lesbian activist in L.A. trying to get her coworker fired was a lawyer, was awful to him. One day he came into work and put a Starbucks mocha on her desk after she had falsely filed some harassment claim against him. He put a mocha on her desk. She looked at him and said, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm horrible to you. And you bring me a mocha? He goes, I know you like them. I just wanted to bless you today. Why are you so kind? It's because of Jesus. Well, then you better introduce me. I kid you not, a gentle answer turns away wrath. I know I've probably taken more time than I should have this morning. I don't really have a concept of time when I speak, which is a dangerous thing I should have mentioned before I came here to be your speaker. But I want to leave you with this. God loves, loves people that are in this community. He has such a tender heart for them. He understands all that they're doing, not through the lens of of their sin, but just like he did with the Samaritan woman in John 4, he sees their hunger, he sees their thirst. For her, she was a Samaritan woman. It was absolutely culturally unacceptable for a Jewish man, let alone a teacher of 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 the law, to speak to her. And yet here Jesus interacts with her in John 4. So much respect and dignity in his conversation with her that she stops the story by saying, why are you talking to me? Someone of your stature doesn't talk to me. And as he's talking with her, he is so plain to her about who he is, more plain than he is to his own disciples about about who he is as the Messiah. 
And yet he confronts her sin. He confronts her behavior. But he does it in a way that is so beautiful. When he says, go get your husband, she says, I don't have one. He says, you're right, you've had five. And the man that you're with currently isn't your husband. What you say is true. He says this on the heels of saying to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't want water from this well. The implication is the well of your sexual desires or your husband's. You would ask me for living water. That would satisfy you. You would never need another drink. Saying instead of criticizing her behavior or what she's doing in her brokenness, redirecting her back to where her thirst really is. Church, can we be that to that community? Because God loves them and he wants to redeem them. And I'm only here. I'm only here because people did that for me. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here at Bridgeview Church. I thank you for the privilege of being with them today. I thank you for the privilege of sharing my testimony and what you've led me to understand in this area, Lord. Lord, I pray that, that the church universal, but also this church here, would be such an example of your love, your grace, your truth, and your power, your holiness that there'd be such a beautiful marriage of the fullness of who you are, that this would become a place where people are compelled to come and give their lives and that they find the, the safety and the mercy and the compassion and the power here in this community to live those lives out to the fullness of who you've called them to be. Lord, I don't just pray that for people that are out there. I pray that for everyone in here today too. I pray that if there's any places of, of, of hidden sin or brokenness or shame, even in the people here today, Lord, that this community would be a place where we could bring it all to the light. We could experience your healing and your love together as a community, that we would be walking in such transformation that everything that the enemy has meant to destroy us now becomes your message of redemption and healing. Lord, you say in Revelation that we overcome the work of the devil through these two things, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Lord, may your blood cleanse us from all our sin, including the ways that we have treated people wrongly and judged them and marginalized them. Cleanse us from that sin now and give us a testimony, Lord God, where we share our own. We equalize the playing field. We make it approachable to be here if you're broken because we've all been broken, and yet we have a good God who has redeemed us. Lord, pour out your spirit on this church. Make them a safe and a transformative place for this community. We bless you, Lord.